Welcome to Virtual Sentiments. This is your host, Kristen Collins, and today's conversation is with Dr. Lucia Raffinelli. Lucia specializes in the ethics of global politics, and she's currently working on the ethics of resistance, as well as the ethics of AI. Lucia's first book was on the ethics of reform interventions, which include non-military interventions by states and also non-state actors. And just like reform interventions, technological systems are, including AI, are often applied and implemented across borders, leading to a whole host of ethical and political questions of moral responsibility. Lucia will also help us think about how political theorists and philosophers have a lot of different theories of justice and often disagree in thinking about justice and ethics. And foregrounding this disagreement and these different approaches are really helpful for those who are thinking about more ethical designs of AI and other technologies. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Lucia Raffinelli, an assistant professor of political science and international affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. She studies contemporary political theory, global politics, and collective agency and personhood. She recently published Promoting Justice Across Borders, The Ethics of Reform Intervention. She also works on issues concerning justice and AI and is preparing a second book on the ethics of resistance in a global context. Hi, Lucia. Thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm so excited to talk to you uh, in part because as somebody who started my academic career in undergraduate uh, with international relations, I know that you'll give us a nice kind of global overview of how we can think about these issues um, and kind of drill down into different topics from there. But I'd love to get us started by giving you a chance to introduce us to you. Um, so how did you come to study the ethics of global politics? Good question. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of different things I could point to that sort of drew me to thinking about the ethics of global politics. I think one of them was just that I grew up in the kind of aftermath of 9-11 and wrestling with, you know, U.S. invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, trying to kind of make sense of what was going on uh, in, in the world. And so I think that was part of it. I think from a bit of a more academic standpoint, I always thought that global politics was a place where there were going to be lots of really hard and theoretically interesting and puzzling questions um, about lots of things, including ethics, partly because I think many of us, myself included, have maybe more developed intuitions about politics and what justice requires in the domestic sphere. I think, you know, a lot of mainstream political discourse so emphatically treats the state as the primary arena where politics happens. And so for me, one thing that meant is that there are lots of interesting unanswered questions and again, lots of theoretical sort of puzzles and challenges and thinking about the ethics of global politics. So those maybe are the two factors I would, I would point to uh, that kind of led me to start working in global justice. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I, I definitely agree that, um, you know, 9-11 and also I think kind of the rise of digital technology and digital media and allowing us to know more about the world as we were growing up and connecting with people um, kind of really impacted my thinking on those on those issues, um, even though, as you say, um, even if we have a more domestic perspective, um, there is there is this trying to wrestle with how do we kind of move beyond that and seeing the connections that we can make in terms of the ethical issues relating to foreign policy. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to also uh, give us more of a basic understanding of your work on reform intervention. So could you explain a little bit about what that concept is, how that differs from other forms of interventions in foreign policy, um, and how that figures into your work? 
Sure. So in the book, I talk about reform intervention, which I use very broadly. And I mean that to encompass any attempt to promote justice in another society. And one reason why that's such a broad category is that one motivating thought behind the book is that there's a lot of different stuff that goes on in global politics. And though there's a big literature in political theory on the ethics of intervention, with some exceptions, that literature is focused usually pretty narrowly on state-led interventions and in particular on military or at least coercive state-led interventions. So the sort of military humanitarian intervention is kind of the paradigmatic case of intervention or type of case of intervention that that literature usually deals with. And so one goal of the book is to kind of expand that discussion around the ethics of intervention to think about all the other different ways in which states, but also other um, other actors on the global stage, try to promote their ideas of justice abroad. So, you know, we can think about um, not just states, but NGOs or corporations or activist networks or even individuals have various ways in which they can engage in global politics and promote their own ideas of justice in other societies not just military or coercive ways, um, but uh, you can think about, for example, uh, transnational activism, boycott divestment campaigns, um, even on the state side, sort of preferential trade agreements, that sort of thing, um, corporate boycotts or, or other corporate policies that you know might have effects that transcend national borders. And so the goal of the book was to develop a set of ethical principles that we could use to sort of judge when these many different varied types of interventions were or were not morally permissible. I really appreciate that. Um, and that I, I think that's an excellent um, overview of the variety of cases that you are engaging with and just how complex this environment is. One thing I really appreciate about that framing too, and this concept of a reform intervention is that just because something isn't traditionally coercive or violently coercive doesn't mean that it isn't ethically complex. Um, there are still issues to be concerned with. Um, and one of the, uh, other features of your argument that I find compelling is a notion you develop of having counter hegemonic interventions. Would you mind explaining a little bit about that concept and what that brings in for ensuring that an intervention is more ethical? Sure. So I think one of the common moral objections against intervention uh, is that it has the potential to sort of reinforce or further entrench objectionable hierarchies in global politics. And that arguably, I think, is especially true when we're thinking about military and coercive state interventions. The argument typically goes something like it's only sort of neo-imperial states, um, perhaps wealthy Western states that are going to have the kind of material capacity and political capacity to intervene militarily and coercively in other states, usually, or very often those will be um, sort of states in the global South or formerly colonized states. And so the practice of intervention, if we think of it that way, you know, even if an individual intervention sort of has a good goal, it might be doing this bad thing of furthering an objectionable hierarchy between neo-imperial powers and um, and other other states uh, or other entities on the on the global stage. And so one of the points that I make in the book is that, uh, of course, that might happen, um, but it doesn't have to happen. Um, and you might have interventions where actually the interveners occupy a sort of less privileged uh, position in those sorts of global power hierarchies than the societies they're trying to intervene in. And those kinds of interventions might actually challenge those hierarchies in a productive way. So one of the cases I talk about in the book uh, involves submitting amicus briefs to foreign courts. So when a few years ago, back in 2010, Arizona passed a kind of now infamous anti-immigration bill, and that law was challenged. It, it went through the U.S. court system, and it was challenged in the Supreme Court. And several Latin American countries submitted amicus briefs also opposing the law and citing the idea that it would basically subject uh, not only citizens of Latin American countries, but other uh, Latinx individuals in the United States to sort of unjust uh, sort of harassment by police forces. 
And so here's an example where we have, you know, Latin American countries intervening in a way in the U.S. trying to produce a political change that's, you know, probably not an intervention that's going to reinforce uh, a sort of colonial or neo-colonial hierarchy. But given the U.S.'s uh, arguably colonial past in Latin America actually works to challenge it. Yeah, I really appreciate that. That's a great example. And I appreciate the idea of theorizing and and bringing this into a broader conversation of how that can be found elsewhere and also supported by those who are interested in intervention and and noticing the way that human rights and ethical concerns and moral responsibilities can transcend state borders because whether we like it or not, the world is so deeply interconnected, it's, it's unavoidable for us to be affecting one another. Um, and we do have uh, feelings of solidarity uh, with people in other countries and vice versa. So I really appreciate that framework. I wanted to ask if you would mind kind of reflecting on how your perspective on global justice uh, coming from that orientation of the ethics of global politics, what kind of unique perspective does that give you for when you start thinking about debates that are going on today about ethics and AI and other uh, ethical and political consequences of technologies today? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, there are maybe a couple of ways uh, in which these these topics sort of connect for me. One is that, as you maybe can tell so far, I am I'm one who tends to think that the sort of requirements of justice don't end at state borders. So um, that, you know, there are principles of justice that apply not only within states, um, but, you know, perhaps universally, um, and that should sort of govern interactions that happen among people in different states. And uh, I think, you know, often when we're thinking about both developing and deploying AI and other technological systems, those things are happening um, in ways that cross state borders. So, um, you know, you might have a system that's designed in Silicon Valley that's being deployed in other places in the world. Uh, and so if we think uh, about some of the issues, you know, we might think about in the context of global justice more generally, uh, you know, what are the ethical questions surrounding a certain group of people in Silicon Valley having an influence, um, perhaps a political or social influence elsewhere in the world. I think those kinds of questions, you know, are also going to be salient when we're thinking about uh, the ethics of, of designing and deploying various new technologies. I think that brings us to one of the many strengths of your open access article, which was for the journal Big Data and Society entitled Justice, Injustice, and Artificial Intelligence, Lessons from Political Theory and Philosophy. So rather than recommending a single framework or school of thought for how we should understand justice and injustice, you characterize political theory and philosophy as being defined by these major disagreements and debates and contestation over what justice requires of us. So would you mind maybe briefly contrasting or giving a couple of examples uh, of these debates and different frameworks um, and also explain why it's helpful for us to be thinking about ethics in AI and the ethical consequences of technologies by confronting all of these arguments as opposed to just picking one with and as opposed to just picking one and running with it. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, one, I think, you know, set of disagreements that you'll find in political theory and political philosophy is about the scope of justice. So, like I was sort of signaling before, there are some people who think, um, you know, we have one set of principles of justice that should apply within a single state um, that are maybe very demanding. And either there are no principles of justice that apply kind of globally or outside that, or if there are, they're, um, they're much less demanding than the ones that apply within a single state. Uh, but there are other people who think that there are very demanding principles of justice that apply globally um, and that apply to, say, international relations or transnational policy. Politics. So that's one sort of source of division. Um, another source of division involves how much we should kind of abstract away from the realities of our actual world when we're theorizing about what justice requires. So uh, one approach which has been very influential in sort of Anglo-American political philosophy is, a, is the Rawlsian approach. 
And Rawls basically says that um, when we're trying to decide or trying to figure out what justice requires, we should sort of imagine which principles of justice we would endorse if we didn't know anything about our particular identities. So we should imagine if we didn't know our race or our gender or our class or even our you know, interests or psychological tendencies, what kinds of principles would we endorse to govern our society? And the sort of thought behind that is that when we're trying to decide or to discover what justice requires, we should be trying to find the principles that would be most fair for everyone, not just the ones that would sort of best serve our interests uh, if we were to implement them. So if we try to imagine what we would agree to if we don't know our own interests, that's a way to kind of try to de-bias our reasoning about moral questions. Um, but there are other people who think that method uh, gives us a sort of distorted picture of what justice requires. So, for example, Charles, Charles Mills has argued this. Um, he's especially concerned with racial injustice, but uh, you can make a similar argument from, uh, from other angles, too. He sort of argues that, uh, you know, in our actual world, we have lots of, um, again, he's particularly concerned with racial injustice that has um, sort of shaped the way people live and organize institutions. Um, and that is very much informed by people's and sort of created by people's own understandings of their identities and how those understandings of their identities relate to each other um, and how they enact power relationships between different people. And so if we want to understand, you know, what justice requires for us and how we could create a more just world, we need to not abstract away from all those things, but, um, you know, pay really close attention to them and how they actually operate in our world. So that's, um, you know, another source of division. There are other people who I also talk about in the big data and society piece um, who make similar sorts of arguments like Kimberly Crenshaw and Audre Lorde have also argued that we shouldn't see social differences as things to be kind of papered over um, or abstracted away from, but we should see them actually as sources of political power, um, as you know, sources of sort of empowerment uh, uh, to, uh, that, that we can draw on to try to create a more just world. I really appreciate that you did a great job summarizing some Thank very you. complex and important uh debates and and points of view in political theory and philosophy. And I think it's something that's very live in our society to be thinking about these issues. Um, I definitely know I've, I've had conversations with people about, you know, how do we how do we grapple with those differences? Um, and it seems to me increasingly we have to acknowledge that that's been a part of our history of political thought, of political philosophy, um, even to, to try to describe what is abstract, what is um, universal, often embeds within it certain uh, certain ways of seeing the world and certain ways of understanding, you know, what is typical of human beings that ends up uh, ignoring those important parts of ourselves as well. Um, so, you know, I, I won't get into all that because that's that's what we political theorists love to kind of uh, spin out and, and reflect on. But I think it's so important to talk about in these issues because sometimes, um, you know, I, I read some work and it'll use the Rawlsian framework of justice to explain something about ethics, the ethical issues in AI. And, you know, when you when you come from it with that kind of wider view, it becomes a little bit, OK, well, what does this miss? So, uh, for example, um, I think one way that people often frame ethical issues in AI is that it's a problem of data, that the data, partly because of historical reasons and what's been collected, resources that are seen as valid or uh, populations that are studied more than others, uh, means that the data is itself biased in some way. And so if we just uh, maximize the data, if we correct the data, we're going to fix issues like discrimination and bias. Uh, what do you think of that kind of framing? Is there anything that that misses in thinking about these issues? Yes, I, I do think there's a lot that that misses. Um, I mean, I think there's some truth to it in that that problem you just described is one way that AI systems can sort of go awry, right? They can be trained on data that, you know, is narrow in some way and then asked to assess a broader pool of data or a pool of data that's just different in some significant way from the data it was trained on. And then, you know, the system doesn't really know what to do. Um, so that is one, one way that, that those systems can go awry. 
but I do think the argument that you just described also obscures a lot. Um, so I think one thing it obscures is that often built into the design of these AI systems and certainly built into the decisions to deploy them in different contexts and for particular purposes are decisions about moral questions and value-laden decisions. Um, and I think you know sometimes there's this attitude that uh, if you're sort of designing an AI system, you can really be neutral on all moral and value-laden questions and you don't have to take positions on them. Uh, and and I really I really doubt I really doubt that um, I think very often again there are those positions that are kind of built into the design of AI systems and that are reflected in the decisions to use those systems in certain contexts and so I think we should be more conscientious about how uh, you know how our AI systems and our decisions to use them in certain ways are reflecting different value commitments certain value commitments and not others. And is there any particular concerns when we kind of go back to and think about it in terms of the global context? Yeah, I mean, I think that this, you know, this, this previous question or previous issue keeps is going to keep recurring this idea that, um, you know, whenever you have uh, one group of people kind of exercising power over another group of people in ways that the second group doesn't necessarily have the, uh, the sort of capacity or the opportunity to influence how that power is being exercised over them, you're going to have issues of fairness, issues of, you know, potential democratic deficits arising. And, you know, that's, I think that's, that's one risk when these AI, AI systems are deployed. Um, I mean, I, honestly, I think it's a risk even in the domestic context. Um, but, you know, maybe it's, a, it's, all, it's even a heightened risk in the global context where the, say, the companies making or deploying AI systems are not necessarily governed by the same political institutions as the communities where those systems are being deployed. Right. And that um, really you know, brings to mind for me um, the fact that right now we are in a kind of time of hype around further new technologies like blockchain and Web3, um, while at the same time there has been many years of more wrestling with some of these political and ethical concerns. Um, and then we can recall that over two decades ago, there was so much um, hype around the early internet uh, potentially leading to democratization and being kind of at one with democracy that it's it's bringing people to a a, a virtual way of connecting and, and contesting traditional forms of authority. Um, so how has your work kind of in thinking about those issues in global justice kind of shaped then the way that we should approach these questions now um, and kind of remembering that history uh, and in moving forward in terms of seeing technology, those who are arguing, well, these technologies can still actually be a solution to a lot of these problems. Yeah, I mean, I think it's right that they maybe they can be, um, that they have the potential to be, uh, but they they won't necessarily be just because they're new technologies. Um, so I, I think there's this other, you know, argument uh, that, that's sometimes made maybe more implicitly than explicitly that, uh, you know, just because a technological system is new or is data driven in some way that that means it's somehow objective or immune to, you know, the various political and ethical problems that we've been discussing, um, or that it's kind of destined to be a force for good. And I think, you know, it, it's a mistake to think that way. I think one of the points I try to make in the big data and society piece, society piece is that AI and other technologies are just tools that humans use to exercise power, often over other humans. Um, and, you know, we can use those tools in ways that further entrench oppression. And we maybe we can also use them in ways that help people liberate themselves. Um, but we shouldn't assume that the second thing is just going to happen uh, kind of automatically because we're using new technology. Yeah, I really like the way that you you put that in your article, the way that um, AI usually involves some exercise of human power. I 
brings to mind for me the other kind of topics that you discuss in your work um, and your interest in frameworks around group agency and structural injustice. Um, how do those concepts help us think about the nature of moral responsibility and could be useful in these debates? Yeah, so I think both the sort of group agency and structural injustice frameworks um, try to give us a way to understand individual responsibility for kind of large scale um, collective actions. Uh, the group agency model typically, uh, theorists of group agency will typically ask, you know, first of all, are group agents real agents that are distinct from their members? So we have you know, a habit of saying things like uh, Facebook did X or, you know, the U.S. did Y. And so one thing that theorists of group agency try to figure out is first, is that way of speaking any more than a metaphor? You know, is there a real agent that we are pointing to and we say, you know, Facebook changed its algorithm? Uh, or is that just a shorthand for saying all the people within Facebook did all these, you know, many different activities? <laughs> um and, you know, once we have an, an answer to that question, uh, then we can start asking, okay, if group agents are real agents, um, how do we understand the responsibilities that individual members of those group agents might have for the group's activities? So how should we understand, for example, what responsibilities an individual employee of Facebook bears for the actions that Facebook as a company takes? Um, or how should we understand the responsibilities that an individual citizen bears for the actions that their state takes? Um, the structural injustice framework uh, kind of addresses a similar set of questions, but from a different angle. So it's not as preoccupied with this question of whether group agents are real agents, um, but it does ask us to think about how each person's sort of individual actions can kind of feed in uh, to broader social structures. So Iris Marion Young, for example, who's a sort of preeminent theorist of structural injustice in contemporary political theory, um, says that we should understand social structures to be comprised of basically the sort of background conditions against which people act and the various social positions that people can occupy and the relationships among those positions. So uh, Young is, is very interested, for example, in the global economy and uh, global supply chains. So we might imagine, uh, you know, there's a social position that is CEO of a major multinational corporation, and there's a social position that is consumer of that corporation's products in a wealthy country. And there's a social position that is factory worker that makes those products in a less wealthy country. And all those positions are kind of defined in part by the relationships, the power relationships among them. And one thing that Young argues is that when we occupy one of these social positions and we kind of act in accordance with the norms and expectations that being in that position puts on us, we help to perpetuate the social structure that that position is a part of. Um, and we can have social structures that are unjust because they sort of uh, advantage some people at the expense of other people. And if we participate in one of those unjust social structures, uh, Young says, they're thereby sort of helping to perpetuate it, we acquire responsibilities to remedy the injustice that it causes. In particular, she thinks we have a responsibility uh, to join with other people in collective action and try to change the social structure. Sorry, that was a lot, but that's no, my quick overview you, of group agency and structural injustice. Yeah, it was a big question to ask, but um, yeah, I love, I just love the opportunity to kind of talk about these concepts that on one hand, sometimes you hear about them in a public discourse. On the other hand, you often hear them discussed with not so great definitions as in not very <laughs> accurate and just adding more confusion and maybe even animosity between people that actually probably largely agree on what's uh, or could come to agreements on some of these issues if if there was kind of clearer understandings here, less of that noise. Um, so so thinking about that though, I mean, and in, in bringing it together those concepts um, in terms of the sort of technological debates that we're having too. Um, I kind of want to give an opportunity to bring in a little bit of what your other work is uh, for your second book in terms of the ethics of resistance because. My understanding is that that also gets a little bit more into these dynamics of kind of 
potential collective action and also empowering people to be able to provide feedback or to provide resistance um, and and affect politics um, in a way that would be kind of correcting some of those types of injustices that were the focus of your first book and also uh, you were just describing in terms of these these theories of group agency and structural injustice. Sure. Yeah, that's right. So the this second book project that I'm just starting to work on now um, is about the ethics of resistance in global context. And I'm especially interested in the ethics of resistance among people who are sort of routinely subject to state power and the power of the state system, but also routinely excluded from its exercise. So, for example, indigenous people, undocumented people, stateless people who are sort of subject to the powers of those institutions, but not necessarily enfranchised or sufficiently franchised uh, kind of within them. And I I think you're right that a big part of that project is sort of trying to explore various different ways um, outside maybe the conventional state or um, statist institutions that people might engage in political activity that could even challenge the authority of those institutions. And to what extent that could be, you know, a promising route for basically politically enfranchising people that who are disenfranchised um, for allowing them to kind of secure for themselves the various benefits and protections that states and the state system deny them. Uh, and so thinking in that sense about the sort of role resistance has to play uh, in creating a just, a more just and more democratic world order. And, you know, maybe this goes back a little bit to, to what we were talking about before about the potential of you know, digital technology to facilitate some of that. Uh, And I think, again, I would say, I I kind of agree that potential is there, but we shouldn't just assume, uh, you know, that digital technology will always facilitate that kind of emancipatory politics. I think it, you know, it has the potential to, to do that. And it also has the potential to undermine it and to, you know, be a force for state oppression. And, you know, it's, it's kind of up to us as people who design and implement and use those technologies to try to guide it uh, in the more emancipatory direction. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So to think that the idea of of the way things are designed or the term often used kind of affordances, kind of what are the actions and ways of communicating that are encouraged by these uh, platforms or whatever the given technology is, is so crucial to thinking about it uh, and thinking about how they affect these dynamics. I, I think that one of the things that I struggle with articulating is, you know, how do we balance out that? I mean, I, I would put it this way. Um, when I reflect back on my uh, kind of formative experiences and, and why I'm interested in these questions of both, you know, the ethics and politics of technology, but also these issues of global justice, um, I, I go back to the fact that, you know, I was among the generation to grow up on, you know, AOL Instant Messenger or all these various uh, social media, the sort of MySpace, all those earlier forms of what would become these uh, types of social media platforms. So there's this simultaneous, oh, you know, there was so much, it felt like there was so much promise um, in these opportunities um, at the same time as you know, seeing, I mean, I, I was somebody who felt, uh, you know, confused and angry about the, about U.S. Um, military interventions um, back in the early 2000s. And how do we kind of balance out the skepticism or the concern and trying to avoid the dangers of what these technologies might have um, while also maintaining a sort of an orientation to the fact that there is still possibility and alternative ways of designing uh, and and engaging and um, relating to technology and how it it orients our politics uh, could still be, it could still lead to these more empowering um, consequences. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I have, you know, an answer (laughs) 
<laughs> um, a solution. But I, I do think that the first step is probably just to recognize that there are these kind of value commitments already built into these various technological systems that we're using. I think the you know, the idea that they are somehow value neutral is really an illusion. And as long as we believe that, you know, we won't be interrogating in the right way um, in order to even find out what value commitments are kind of embedded in the technologies that we use, let alone to try to decide whether those are value commitments that we want embedded in the technologies that we use. Um, so I do think that's, you know, that that has to be a big part of it um, is just recognizing, <laughs> recognizing that they're not value neutral. Right. And I think, you know, one line that sometimes we've heard from Facebook, for example, is that, you know, Facebook itself doesn't produce content. Right. It doesn't determine what's on your Facebook page. It's, you know, it's all these individual people posting that produce the content. Um, but of course, you know, Facebook has algorithms that decide what you see and, you know, who sees what and, uh, and, and that sort of encourage certain kind of po posts maybe to get more likes or that, you know, elevate posts that have certain kinds of likes or comments over others. Um, and, you know, all of those things are, are, are decisions um, that, that do shape the content that, you know, kind of gets put out there. Um, I mean, that's maybe a, a, you know, just one example of the way in of, a, of ways in which things that might appear on their face to be kind of neutral are actually, you know, taking positions on various questions. Right. No, exactly. And I think getting to, you know, the way that um, we can think about things in the sort of traditional uh, space of thinking about political systems and structures, socioeconomic uh, systems, and how those incentivize certain behaviors and certain ways of relating to people um, and certain power dynamics, how you see the same thing in these um online platforms and I, you know, I, I did talk to Jennifer Forstall for this podcast and she does, has great work on, you know, thinking in terms of design and, and space and how these sort of theories of the built environment can help inform the way that we think about these things, because as much as, <laughs> um, it might be good PR to say, well, the things you don't like are just because we give the users all this power to create content, blame, you know, don't blame us, blame the users, uh, for a company like Facebook to say that, again, good PR, but um, really kind of effacing how much uh, he, people react to the incentives around them and the environment they find themselves. Um, and I think, again, I, 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 this is sort of the kind of the struggle, I think, as a political scientist and, and thinking about these issues is, again, trying to figure out, OK, what cutting through some of the hype, both. PR hype, but also um, hype from sc scholars who are more excited about and, and and interested in this, you know, how do we build from here? How do we go from here? Uh, rather than maybe a more, um, how do we criticize what has been, what has happened, what we've seen, or, or, or um, is this issue of on the one hand, it's an incentivized, the company is incentivized or companies on the one hand, companies are incentivized to say, oh, our digital advertising technology is so great. Um, we can find the people who are kind of most likely uh, to be buying a certain type of product and reach out to them and kind of push them over uh, the edge while at the same time saying, oh, well, we are not responsible for any if you if you do find any kind of political harms or, you know, the rise of extremism of people uh, kind of getting filtered into certain um, violent groups, uh, things like that. We we have nothing to do with that. That's not our um, that's not something that we can be blamed for. So wanting to kind of cl claim responsibility and credit for these kind of business practices uh, while at the same time wanting to eschew the politics and on Really, at the end of the day, for I think a social scientist, the question is not just, you know, I, I think you and I as political theorists were motivated by certain value concerns. It's also just trying to understand, well, what is going on? How do we actually know how these uh, systems work and affect the users on these sites as opposed to other sites, um, as opposed to other ways of interacting in the world that we've studied, um, you know, various civil society organizations and things like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And yeah, you know, it's, uh, uh, we have to recognize that, as, as you were saying, there are sort of choices that are made to design, design these digital spaces in some ways and not others. And those, <laughs> those can affect the way that people interact on them. Uh, and, you know, which I think goes, goes back to this, this question or this issue about, you know, seeing AI or seeing digital technology as somehow value neutral when, when often I think it's not. Um, just another, I think, really interesting and um, troubling example of this is, I, I think, one rightly controversial use of AI systems has been um, these algorithmic systems that are designed to help decide um, whether somebody gets released from prison while they're awaiting trial, or to decide how high someone's bail is set, or even to decide um, how harsh someone's sentence is when they're convicted of a crime. Um, and I mean, those systems have already been used pretty widely in the U.S. and um, it, just one of them that we know of, there was a great ProPublica report about some of this a few years ago, um, where they, uh, you know, they sort of got from one of the companies that designed one of these systems, a list of the questions that its system sort of asked and took in data on in order to produce a risk assessment score, which was meant to predict basically the likelihood that somebody would commit another crime or commit a crime in the future. Um, there's all kinds of data that goes into producing the score, including um, did somebody live, uh, grow up in a household with both their parents? Were their parents ever arrested? Um, do their friends do illegal drugs. Um, and some of the questions are even explicitly value-based, like, do you believe that a hungry person has a right to steal? Um, and so, you know, somewhere along the line, somebody decided that it was fair, or at least it was acceptable for those kinds of things uh, to determine basically whether or how long somebody has to stay in prison. Uh, and so I think that's a clear example of, you know, an AI system really embedding value value choices, right? Embedding positions on moral issues um, in its design. And so, you know, I think it's easy to look at like the output of that system, this risk assessment score and think, well, you know, here's a piece of data. It's neutral. Um, you know, it's neutral on value questions. It's just telling me, a, a, you know, a risk, a statistical likelihood, um, when in fact there's all kinds of value judgments already built into how that, um, you know, risk assessment was kind of calculated. There is this over oh, oh, sort of open open ended question with AI, um, and I, I'm drawing a little bit on Virginia Eubanks's book Automating Inequality that that talks about some of these issues as well. Um, but there is a sense when people promote the use of a, a program like that is that well you're actually abstracting from human beings who are going to be biased. Um, and Virginia Eubanks kind of brings up this notion of there's a loss of empathy and a loss of uh, ability to recognize um, if you are relying on these systems that they are still coming from human decisions, um, but there's no kind of way to appeal to them. Um, so I guess, you know, how do you think about that uh, in terms of how we should think about when decisions are made with programs like this and how do we get how do we deal with the kind of claims of, well, these are potentially more impartial or potentially more objective or avoiding some other pitfalls that we see if we just use um, uh, human human beings as the decision makers for these? I mean, I do think that that's sometimes the intention behind these systems. I, I do think that was, you know, at least on some people's part, that was the intention behind the sort of criminal justice risk assessment systems, um, you know, was to sort of reduce human bias. Um, but uh, again, I think sometimes that uh, that perspective is maybe overly optimistic. It's sort of born of this idea that, um, again, there's something neutral or objective about AI systems because they're based on data. Um, and I just think that's, you know, that's not true as a general rule, um, right? The data still comes from people. The data is, uh, you know, put into uh, kind of formulas or, or, or calculated that, you know, ultimate scores are calculated in certain ways that are designed by people. Um, 
And, you know, the data is the data that these systems take in often is going to reflect the, you know, sort of inequalities um, and injustices of the world that it comes from. And so, you know, I, I just I don't think we can assume that, again, simply because an AI system is an AI system or because it uses data that it's going to be unbiased or less biased than a human. Um, th there's another case that I talk about in the big data and society piece, um, which involves uh, an automated resume sorter that Amazon designed. Uh, to Amazon's credit, they did scrap this project when the problem I'm about to describe <laughs> became apparent. Um, but basically, it was designed to be able to sort of sift through a large pool of resumes and pick, you know, the top X percent to then, you know, get go to the next round or get an interview or, or whatever. And um, it was trained on uh, data from the previous 10 years of applications to Amazon jobs. And perhaps unsurprisingly, most of those applications came from men. Uh, so it ended up that this automatic resume sorter, which was, you know, part, you know, arguably intended to reduce human bias. It ended up actually automating a sort of anti-woman bias. Um, it ended up downgrading women's resumes. It downgraded resumes that contained the word women's. So if you said, you know, I was on the women's soccer team or the women's debate club, um, your resume got downgraded. <laughs> um, and, you know, the reason for that, uh, it seemed, was this problem we were talking about earlier that, you know, the algorithm was trained on data that came from, from mostly men. So it learned kind of a model of what a good resume looks like. And then when it, you know, was deployed in a context where it was asked to assess resumes from both men and women, um, it, you know, it sort of identified that the women's resumes didn't look like its model <laughs> of what a good resume looked like because its model was based on only men's resumes. Um, and so it ended up, you know, discriminating against, against women's resumes, basically. So again, you know, I just think, um, Maybe there are maybe there are ways to design these systems such that they would reduce bias, but we can't assume that they will reduce bias just because they're automated systems. Um, is there any other final thoughts that you want to share? Um, I mean, I, I think you know my my final reflection would just be this this point that we've been talking about uh, about not assuming that new technologies or AI systems or data-driven systems in general are, are neutral. Because um, again, I think, you know, we will never get to the answers about how can we make these systems kind of work for us and work for good uh, if we don't even recognize that in designing them and using them, we're taking positions on moral questions. Well, thank you, Lucia. I really appreciate you. You're have an excellent um, skills for explaining these very complicated topics in such uh, easily understandable ways, um, and kind of bridging these bigger picture questions about ethics uh, with very concrete experiences that I think will resonate with people. So, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation. Lucia helps us think about a lot of different aspects of global politics, as well as the ethics of AI. So she works on studying specifically reform interventions, which, as she put it, is any attempt to promote justice in another society. And she specifically works on thinking about not just states, but non-state actors, including NGOs and individuals. And this led to her work on the ethics of resistance and transnational um, solidarity. I think a, a useful concept to keep in mind when we're thinking about global politics from Lucia is this idea of counter-hegemonic interventions. So there's ways in which different groups in, a, in different countries might intervene or attempt to intervene in countries that are historically have occupied a higher status in the global world order. I think that Lucia's work in global politics has really well positioned her to think about the way that different theories, philosophies of justice might shape the design of AI technologies. 
we've had a few other episodes and we've talked about different ways that bias can be embedded within technologies and like AI. And that includes the idea of training data, data, which is shaped by particular histories that might have created inequalities, how an algorithm will be trained. But what I really appreciate about Lucia's points here is that bias and different ethical issues in AI can be embedded even without anything particular about the data. Um, There's also important questions at the design stage and at the implementation stage, um, especially, which is, I think, is especially evident if we think about the global implementation of technologies designed in one society, uh, one culture that are then applied to another. Studying and critiquing the ethical implications or values that might be embedded and perpetuated by AI and other technologies isn't necessarily to think about the idea that there might have been bad intentions or anything like that in the design of these technologies, but rather to think more deeply about the way that technologies aren't necessarily neutral, that uh, there are a lot of complicated values that affect the way that we think about the world, the way that we define a problem, uh, the way that a technology is designed to evaluate people who the technology might be applied to, for example, with a, a risk assessment program. And there are a lot of different ways of thinking about justice and injustice. And one of the ones that Lucia mentioned was the idea of structural injustice, which she's citing from Iris Marion Young. And it's a very complex topic and hopefully something we'll be able to talk a lot more about. But in short, I think something that's essential for thinking about that concept is that it is more complicated than um, it, it refers to a moral wrong that is, and I, I'm citing Young's 2011 book, Responsibility for Justice, where structural injustice refers to something that's distinct from, quote unquote, the wrongful action of an individual agent or the repressive policies of a state, rather So she goes on to say, structural injustice occurs as a consequence of many individuals and institutions acting to pursue their particular goals and interests, for the most part within the limits of accepted rules and norms. And so structural justice can also refer to processes having unintended consequences. So it does not necessarily mean that people intend for bias to exist and to perpetuate problems rather than solve them, but rather that we might benefit from having a broader vision of the complex social processes and institutions that shape the situations that we are trying to improve and whether or not um, technologies contribute to uh, resolving or perpetuating those dynamics. I want to conclude this episode with a big thank you to Matt Beal. Matt has been the producer of this podcast for most of this first season. This will be the last episode that he produced as he moved on to a different position. But I want to emphasize just how essential Matt has been to this podcast from the very early stages of thinking about what we could talk about here uh, to designing the episode structure and making me sound a lot smoother on these recordings. So thank you so much, Matt. And thank you to all of you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Till next time.